In 4 BC, when Herod the Great died, the various realms of his empire were divided up amongst three of his sons. But as was the practice at the time, you didn't just get sent a letter in the mail telling you about the estate that you've received. You didn't just get a special delivery from Australia Post in a box, which was a crown or something like that. But as was the practice of the time, you had to take a trip to Rome in order the kingship would be conferred by the Roman emperor of the day. That was the practice. And that's exactly what happened with one of Herod's sons, Archelaus. In fact, we know, just like the ruler in the parable, Archelaus was detested. There was good reason for that. On one occasion, he had slaughtered 3,000 people. And that when Archelaus went up to Rome to have his kingship conferred, a delegation of people went up in parallel simultaneously in order to lobby the emperor against Archelaus being made king. History tells us that even though Archelaus didn't receive the title king, he was indeed conferred by the emperor as ruler over the region of Judea. This is the relatively recent regional history that Jesus is likely referring to, has in mind when he shares this parable. And of course, the point of Jesus inferring the link is not because Jesus is like the ruler in the quality of character, but he's pointing out that there would be a delay between Jesus being made king and his return. That's what he wanted the disciples and others to understand because we're told in verse 11 that he's trying to correct their expectations. So verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem People had been hoping that the arrival of the Messiah in Jerusalem would signal a final reckoning of God's kingdom all at once in a moment, that a blow for justice would be struck, that the Romans would be evicted, and that God's Messiah would be enthroned and take up his right rule and reign. But Jesus says again and again and again, no, this is not how it's going to happen. I'm not going to take up the throne, but the cross. I'm not going to just die, but rise again. And that even though the kingdom of God has arrived in part, it will not arrive in full until I return again. There will be a delay. There's a delay between his death, resurrection, exaltation to God's right hand as king, and his return when God's kingdom will come in full. Now, it's important for us to understand that this isn't a delay due to poor project management or something like this. This isn't sort of a political bungle. Uh, Jesus isn't like us over the last 12 months, pivoting plans because of unpredicted uh, circumstances. The problem isn't the delay between Jesus' departure and his return. The problem is that the disciples and others simply haven't understood. They will be living between the now and not yet, between Jesus' exaltation and return. And he wants them to understand 
after everything happens that must come to part in Jerusalem does, what they're to do while they wait. And here we are in Toowoomba, or wherever someone's joining us from on the live stream, 2,000 years later, living in that very same time frame between the now and not yet. So Jesus is king. He's been exalted and enthroned at God's right hand. And he is coming back in judgment to bring his kingdom to completion. He lived between the now and not yet. So what are we meant to do in the meantime? We have been entrusted with God's gifts to be put to work for lasting effect. So first, we have been entrusted with God's gifts. So verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So at the time, Amina was equivalent to about three months' wages. So whilst not a fortune, in a subsistence economy in which most people live from day to day, it is a substantial sum of money. However, the really critical thing to grasp is not the quantum of that which they have been given, but whose money it is with which they have been entrusted. This is not the master heading off and handing out farewell gifts. You can have a meaner, you can have a meaner, and you can have a meaner. But this is the owner entrusting his gifts to his servants whilst he's gone. That's evident by the master and his command, his commendation, and the condemnation. Makes it clear who the owner is. So the command, he says, take these gifts and put them to work until I return. The commendation, as he calls the servants to account when he actually does return because he's the owner he has the right to. And the condemnation of the one who does nothing at all with that which was entrusted. He's the owner. He has the right. It's a business arrangement. They're not the owners of the gifts. They're stewards of the owner's gifts. Two of the owners, they totally understand who the owner is. Two of the servants, they totally understand who the owner is, not just because of what they do with the money with which they've been entrusted, but also note when they're called to account who they attribute the credit to. So we read when they're called to account, the first servant says, verse 16, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. And the second servant says, verse 18, Sir, your mina has earned five more. They know that these gifts are not their own. So often when it comes to gifts that God has entrusted with us, we can expend enormous amounts of energy and angst comparing our gifts to others, thinking, oh, my gifts are so small and insignificant to that other person. We can be concerned that we don't have much to give. When likely the biggest constraint is not the size of our gifts, but our forgetfulness of who the true owner is. God has given us all extraordinary gifts in every facet of our lives. He's given us the gift of time, financial resources, skills, experiences, knowledge, access to various people and networks on different front lines, relationships. But the key determining factor 
that will so often shape how we use those gifts, of how we'll be motivated to use those gifts, is not how grand we think the gifts are or how good we think we can perform, but if we grasp who is the true owner. A couple of weeks ago, my dad was visiting Toowoomba and I had to drop him up to our kids' school for, for grandparents' day. Now, the trip to the school is less than one kilometre and even though I've traversed those streets hundreds and hundreds of times before, I have never exhibited such caution and intent as I did that day when I was driving my dad's brand new car. Why? Because it wasn't mine. When we wake every morning with the view that all that we have that day, wherever you go, whatever you take is God's, it will transform, it will radically transform how we put those things to work. We live in a culture that says, everything you have is yours, you've earned it, you deserve it. We live in a culture that says, and what you don't have, well, when you get it, you're going to be so fulfilled. But Jesus says, everything that we have is a gift from God entrusted to us. And we'll only find its true purpose and true fulfilment in being put to work in anticipation of his return. So when it comes to God's gifts, there are really three dangers for us. Thinking what we've been entrusted with is little. Forgetting what we have been entrusted with is actually God's. Or reluctant to take a risk and let go of our gifts for God's purposes. That purpose of our gifts is clear, for not only does the master say to the servants, verse 13, put this money to work until I come back, so we know the time frame, Jesus is returning, but when he does come back, he calls the servants to give an account for what they've done. Verse 15, then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Who has the right to do that? Only the owner. Can you imagine one moment if one of my neighbours came and knocked on my door and they said, hi, Adam, you've probably noticed I've been away a few months and so I just wanted to drop in and check on you and see how you've been using your gifts whilst I've been gone, whilst I've been absent. I'd, I'd probably say fairly directly but as politely as possible, uh, no, thank you. What right do you have to ask? But Jesus, as the Lord of all, has every right to ask and that's exactly what he'll do. And what's amazing is that Jesus, just like the king in the parable, hasn't given ultra-specific instructions for every second of the day on how to make a gain, but he's given us enormous scope to use the gifts entrusted to further his interests. So Jesus isn't like the, the micromanaging boss who diarises every minute of every day in your calendar. He's not like the boss who specifies every dollar of spend in your budget whilst they're away. But God has lavished diverse gifts on us with an enormous scope of how we are to use them with a single purpose in mind, to participate in our master's work. So often we get really fixated in evaluating the size of our gifts and we miss the extraordinary scope he's given us to use them. 
uh, every day. God has given you the scope every day. Wherever you go, God has given you extraordinary scope on how to use your gifts. And when we're mindful of that, not only will that have an effect every single day, but when it forms a pattern in our lives, it will have an extraordinary reach. So what's the purpose in mind? In what part of our master's business do we have the privilege to share? Well, we're told in verse 10, I think, in the preceding stories, the story of Zacchaeus finishes up. Why did Jesus come? To seek and save the lost. We're to use every part of our lives, every gift entrusted, to point people to the good news that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. To obediently shape our purpose and will to our master's purpose and will. Now, sometimes that'll be really obvious what that looks like day to day. Sometimes it's going to take a lot more thought and prayer. But it all begins by having the heartbeat of our intention not tuned to our will, but Jesus' will. So tomorrow I want you to imagine, wherever you're going, first thing tomorrow, on whatever front line you arrive, be it your, your family or your workplace or your, your place of study, as you enter, I want you to recall, don't shout this out loud unless you really want to, you have gifts that the Lord has given to you to be put to work. Not my will, but God's will. So note, it's a lack of obedience that really is at the heart of the servant who does nothing. He's very quick to blame the master, saying he was frozen by fear, for the master was a hard man. But Jesus exposes the excuse for what it is, saying, in effect, if you really believed that, if you really believed that I was a hard man, if you really thought I was as bad as you say I am, well, you would have, at very least, deposited the money in the bank. The heart of the problem wasn't fear, nor was it being super risk-averse, but simple disobedience. He didn't want him as king, so he refused to obey. He wasn't interested in, and he didn't trust in the king's purposes, so he did nothing at all. As we await for Jesus' return, our focusing purpose is not to maximise my potential to be all that I can be, but to maximise the return for our King to serve his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean you need to become a minister or something like that, but it could. But it means taking whatever we have and directing it for God's purposes. That, that if you're an artist, how do you do that in a way that serves God's kingdom? That if you're a teacher or a barista or a builder, a cleaner, a doctor or an accountant, if you're single or married, a parent or a grandparent, you might have large decision-making responsibility and scope for others. You might have really significant time you can invest. Whatever it is, the point is that we would direct all of that in service of the king. You could be the most brilliant teacher in the world racked up every award, achieved every promotion, but if it's not for the return of the king, it's missed the point. Entrusted with God's gifts to be put to work, 
for lasting effect. As we come to verses 17 through to 27, we see two very distinct outcomes. Those who obey the king are rewarded, and the one who disobeys the king is judged, is punished. Now, let me say right up front here, we must be on guard as we come to these verses, that this is not a section that is some sort of double affirmation of a gospel of works, that somehow we're meant to earn salvation. That's not what is happening here. Let's be really clear about that. We see that first. Look at the one who was judged. So verse 24, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And then verses 26 to 27, he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. We should be rightly confronted by this, but note that the punishment that the servant receives is not just because of unfruitfulness. I think sometimes when we hear this, we could be quite nervous and think, Oh, there's so little fruit evident in my life. Is this what awaits me? But of course, this cannot be what this means. So not only have we seen in the Gospel of Luke time and time again, we've been assured that when we put our trust in Jesus, we are saved. Nothing can change that. It is a gospel of grace, not work. This isn't about a lack of productivity, but it's about the servant's disobedience reflecting his rejection of the king. If the servant believed all that he claimed, then he would have done something. But he didn't want him to be king, so he refused to recognize his authority. But note, the servant's approach to the king doesn't change the reality of who the king is, but it does change his relationship to him. You can resist Jesus You can rebel against his kingship. You can reject his rule. But it does not change the reality of who he is. Jesus is king. And he is returning. And when we reject him as king, then we reject the grace he offers. When we see Jesus for the king who he is, and we put his gifts to work, in his grace, there is rich reward. Verses 16 and 17. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant. His master replied, Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Now that's quite a return, isn't it? So I started off with a relatively small sum of money entrusted, And the reward now seems totally out of proportion to the original gift entrusted. So for all the accountants and CFOs out there, you're thinking this is an amazing return. They start with three months' wages, they've ended up with 10 cities. So can just imagine Toowoomba, Brisbane, Sydney, just run off the list, 10 cities. But what we're reminded here, of course, this is not some sort of prosperity gospel saying that when you give a certain amount for God's purposes, then it gives you a stack more. We're reminded that being entrusted with the master's business, he will entrust us with even more. It's a total act of grace because, remember, the gifts were the master's to begin with. And then the rewards, well, they're totally disproportionate to our merit. 
We can so often think, oh, I do, do so little. But Jesus says, even what you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Nothing is missed, ignored, goes unnoticed, or is looked over. You might be really frustrated when your boss or spouse or friend doesn't notice what you've done. But Jesus doesn't miss anything. But even better, God takes even our smallest gifts that are directed to his purposes and he uses them in ways that we can only begin to dream or imagine. Last Wednesday night at our small group, as I was looking around the room and I was reflecting on how brilliantly gifted everyone in our small group is, there's a childcare worker, student, physio, doctor, teacher, children's minister, a carer, and, and many more. And as I looked around, I was recalling the amazing ways in which they inspire me to put my gifts to work that have been entrusted to me. It caused me to, to marvel, knowing just snippets of their stories, in how God has been intricately at work over many, many decades, across many continents, through many faithful people, using their gifts, time and resources, in order that every person in that room had come to put their trust in the Lord, and we're now putting their gifts to work on all of their front lines in order that many more disciples would be made. And when you multiply that image over the entire of our church, and over the entirety of the body of Christ, across all the ages, it is a thrilling glimpse of God's grace being poured out to lasting effect. That's what this Friday night, as we launch Vision 2025, is really all about. How can we as a church best serve the King to lasting effect? That his gifts might be multiplied out across time and place, not for our glory, but for his glory alone. God has entrusted us with gifts to be put to work for lasting effect. How can we maximise our gifts in service of the returning King? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your extraordinary kindness that you have poured out your gifts, that you've entrusted them to us. Lord, we please, we pray that you would help us in the power of your Spirit to recognise those gifts for what they are, of what you've entrusted to us, and that they ultimately belong to you. Lord, please equip us every day to focus on you, to serve you as the owner of those gifts, and put them to work wherever we may be, in whatever places you have put us, that we might have the great privilege of participating in your mission to seek and save the lost. Lord, we thank you that as we offer those gifts that you've entrusted to us, that you multiply them out in ways that we can only begin to dare, to dream or to imagine. And so we ask that you might use those gifts for your glory and your kingdom alone. In Jesus' name, amen.